This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're delighted to be joined by a one-time guest who's returning to the podcast for the first time, John Schweppe. John is the Director of Policy for the American Principles Project, where he advances the organization's legislative priorities by working with allied groups and with federal and state lawmakers. He's an alumnus of the Claremont Institute's Lincoln Fellowship, and he's been published in numerous publications, including the New York Post, the American Mind, First Things, Newsweek, The Federalist, and The Daily Caller. John is in the thick of things concerning congressional Republicans' inability to message on the life issue after the Wisconsin judicial elections in particular. We'll talk with John about why he thinks this represents a crisis for the Republican Party and for the pro-life movement. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, hello and welcome to the Anchor and Truths podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Daniel Osborne, our programs manager. I'm hosting our podcast today. I'm joined today by Garrett Snedeker, our deputy director, and our guest uh, from the American Principles Project, uh, John Schweppe. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Okay, well, John, recently, towards uh, the beginning of this month, you had a tweet that... um, shall we say, exploded uh, online. Uh, it became uh, lots of interactions, lots of reshares, lots of retweets, and lots and lots, I will say, of comments. Uh, I took some time today as we were getting ready for this to just take a look through some of those comments. And I have to say, there was a wild variety uh, from different sides talking about this issue. Uh, in particular, on one, one element of your tweets, I, I just wanted to quote from it in particular. You say, uh, the death of the pro-life movement is at hand here. Uh, we have no time to waste on disagreements over strategy. We need to give GOP politicians a winning message on life now. Uh, if they, if we don't, they will abandon us and embrace no federal role. John, why is is are you speaking in hyperbole here, or do you really mean that? And if so, why isn't this hyperbole here? Um, what? How did we get here? What's going on? Well, I don't I don't think it is hyperbole, uh, certainly the political pro-life movement, um, you know, always there'll, there'll always be a pro-life movement, uh, regardless of whether five percent of the country is pro-life. Right. Because uh, we understand that these this is human life, uh, that we want to prevent women from doing this horrendous thing to their babies. And so, you know, I don't want to ever say that the pro-life movement, that people who are pro-life, who are passionate to protect these babies, that they'll go away. That won't happen. But um, I do think politically that is a risk and and it's a very real one uh, currently. Um, you know, in the aftermath of Dobbs, well, let's 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 rewind a little bit. Before Dobbs, I think the pro-life movement was in an incredibly strong position. Uh, we obviously, the, the pro-life movement basically, um, you know, crowned Donald Trump as the nominee afterwards. Uh, he came to them basically said, what do I need to do to earn your support? They gave him a a laundry list of demands, and he met all of them. Uh, He appointed three Supreme Court justices that are pro-life. You know, I mean, it was uh, uh, ish. Um, And and so I think, uh, you know, 
they were clearly in a very strong position and Dobbs happened. And, and what ended up happening afterwards is that all of a sudden, you know, the, the Republicans didn't know how to message on this. And my, my tweet thread kind of got to this a little bit. I do think the pro-life movement, the political pro-life movement bears some fault on that because we've been really divided and mixed messaged. Uh, some of us, I think, really thought we could go for all of it now and save every life. Some of us were still very much incremental, uh, recognizing where polls were at and, you know, what could be accomplished in the present. And I think that divide within the pro-life movement gave the establishment GOP that really doesn't care about this issue that much, if we're being honest, um, the excuse to, to not do anything on it. And so now we're in a very precarious situation where, um, you know, leadership has basically asserted at, on both sides that we're not going to do any sort of, um, conception or, uh, uh, gestational limit bill, uh, during these Congress, this Congress, not even going to support one publicly. Um, you know, that's a big change. Two years ago, uh, on both the House and Senate side, we had paying capable bills. Uh, that was a 20 week ban at the time. And that had the support of almost the entire caucus. And so, you know, I, I think we're in a danger zone and, and hopefully this month, um, you know, helped bring attention to that because we are actually seeing a more united pro-life movement now. But my fear was what I had been hearing, which is that um, certain presidential candidates were going to publicly embrace the no federal role position, um, that there a lot of senators were feeling more aggressive about coming out saying they actually thought uh, because the Constitution doesn't explicitly say the word abortion, there's no role uh, for the federal government that should be left to the states. I was really worried about this becoming mainstream, and that was the, the point of my tweet. Um, and and we got some good conversation this month. Um, some not not the conversation we want, I don't think, but uh, hopefully we recognize the, the the threat we're up against. Yeah, uh, John Garrett here. Um, I, I'm I'm grateful that your tweet generated the interest it generated um, on the left as well as the right. I mean, the folks on the left who were responding to your tweet in the wake of the um, Wisconsin judicial election uh, were uh, criticizing you because. They saw you as an exemplar of sort of the ostrich in the with head in the sand, right? That think, oh, the only thing wrong with the GOP's position on abortion is messaging. And the funny thing is, that's actually your position that like the GOP still is the pro-life party, but it just doesn't know how to message the heck out of it. The left wanted to characterize your position as completely out of touch. The irony is you're one of the most in touch, um, you know, uh, uh, Figures in the you know pro life movement who are actually talking to members of Congress, and they are t- and they are telling you that they just don't know how to message this, partially because they don't understand what the Dobbs decision actually held, which was that this was now uh, an issue for legislating at the federal and state level, not that this is just being kicked squarely back to the states. Um, can you give me uh, and our listeners a sense for just kind of? why this is so difficult to message um, and why in the string of losses, um, which, you know, I could look back to as recently after Dobbs as um, the Kansas referendum, but, um, you know, uh, even even since, why this is so difficult um, at the federal and state level to agree on a message uh, uh, as well. So I think there's two parts to that. Um, yeah. But I'll, I'll cover the, the difficulty of finding the message first. Uh, we have varying interests um, 
that are coming. I'll start at the federal level, varying interests that are coming from all over the place. So you have someone like Senator Lankford, who is pro-life, um, who has a very bizarre, I think, a misconception about what we should do in terms of a national strategy. He's from Oklahoma. They have a full ban there with, uh, I think, a, a mother's life exception. And his position, and he stated this publicly, I'm not, I'm not disclosing anything, is that uh, if we pass a federal limit that is to the to the left of of his state's position, that he would somehow be squishing out and not be be consistent. That makes no sense, right? Like obviously, um, you know, if we're going to have a federal limit at 15 weeks, let's take that for example. Uh, that is the minimum essentially that we're allowing in all 50 states. And then various states would be able to determine for themselves how pro-life they wanted to be. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at, say, babies in California, which is, you know, frankly, the abortion capital of the, the, of the country, uh, you know, that's a lot of babies. And if we don't do something at the federal level, that's a hard blue state. So it's never going to happen. Right. I mean, those right. are just continue to be aborted. Um, there's abortion tourism there. So the reality is the only way to ever save those babies is to do something federally. Um, and so you have that. You also have, I think, some folks who, again, I'm not going to name names on this. I don't want to be a jerk, but I think people who are not actually that pro-life, uh, who are Republican senators, who would love for this issue to be done, that they, they're the types where they were on the campaign. They would say, yes, I want to overturn Roe. Yes, I'm pro-life 100%. And that's all they'll say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they signed on to the 20-week bill because that's where everyone was at at the time, but they don't really want to do anything. And so they love... For, for the purposes of politics, they love this idea that it, we, uh, I think Frank Cannon actually coined it, but it's rapid onset federalism. Mm-hmm. That's really, they just care about this so much that they just, you know, that the 10th amendment is, is critical here. We can't do anything. Um, and there's a lot of those, um, more, more than I think we'd like. But you have someone like, oh, sorry. Oh, go go, I'll let you, I'll let you finish, but, but. I do want to come back to the whole idea that somebody, these guys can't legislate on abortion. <laughs> right. And then, well, and then you have somebody like McConnell who, you know, I've, I've had critical words for, but I do think he's in a pretty impossible situation. He initially did say that there was a federal role on this, that we'd be do, willing to do some sort of abortion limit. Obviously he was thinking about the 20 week bill in the past that, that of course there was going to be support for that. And then he got into a, a lot of pushback from his caucus. Uh, remember that the establishment consultants were basically blaming abortion for all of our losses uh, and, you know, said it was a, a you know, an uh, anvil around us that, that we couldn't get rid of unless we just stopped talking about it. That's incorrect. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but so 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 basically, uh, from my perspective, the only fix here, Congress is worthless. Uh, you have to have a presidential candidate who represents the orthodoxy of the party, who leads and tells them what to do. And I think until we have that, uh, we're the pro-life movement's in trouble. And and if we don't get that in 2024, if we end up having a president, uh, presidential candidate who says no federal role, then, yeah, then I would say the the pro-life movement is on its on its deathbed. So Jerry Bradley of, of Notre Dame has observed that the price of being a legislator who is pro-life went way up after Dobbs because no longer would you be able to mouth platitudes about being pro-life without actually having consequences to um, have to um, address after right a, a bill which would have been presumptively um, 
unconstitutional under the Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey regime, but now under Dobbs um, could move forward. Um, there are prudential ways to move about um, restoring a culture of life, and some of them will involve issues that will just kind of fall squarely within the Congress's um, lap. And I'm thinking about any time they have uh, votes on like, appropriations and, and funding abortion. I'm thinking of, for example, abortions on military bases and in the and in the territories. I mean, this whole idea that the that the legislature after Dobbs will no longer have any business whatsoever on abortion is frankly um, uh, it's insulting because we know that these issues keep are, are going to keep coming up. Um, it was even predicted well before Dobbs came down. Um, Professor Julia Mahoney in a, a Federal Society um, speech that Daniel and I attended um, was already gaming this out that um, the Federal Congress is absolutely going to continue to be involved in abortion. Um, and if they don't understand the implications of a post row um, uh, legal regime and the responsibilities that they still have, um, then we've really miseducated um, our, um, uh, our, our congressman about how this is still an issue that falls squarely within, um, their province. And so I guess, John, like, what are these people telling you when they say we are, we, we, we don't want to have anything to do with it? Is this because they are not tutored or is it because they have some kind of path of least resistance that they think that they can follow? Well, there is some, I think, a lack of education. So I'm not having anyone tell me. I, I'm speculating when I say that I think some people don't care about the issue. They know better than to say that, right? So that it's more, oh, you know, we we are prohibited by this. Uh, if you read Dobbs, it says it returns it to the states. And then, you know, I respond and show them how it says it actually returns it to the people and their representatives, which is federal and state. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of that. And look, you got to understand politicians, with some exceptions, like someone like Mike Lee, we all know Mike Lee is, is, is a studious guy, really smart. He's reading, pouring over all this stuff. But generally, these guys operate from talking points. They mm-hmm. operate on what they were told and go from there. And, you know, the, the reality here is that, um, we, we just have to, we have to basically assert and I think the pro-life movement has a responsibility here, there is a federal role and there will be punishments for you if you think otherwise. This isn't a debate, ultimately. We 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 recognize that to save lives, and we, by the way, with this Supreme Court decision on the abortion bill, I think this becomes even more important. There's no way to stop abortion in this country long-term unless we have a federal answer on this. And it has to start. I would love to do heartbeat bill. I don't think the support is there, but it has to start with a gestational ban at a certain point with exceptions. And, you know, that's a really moderate position uh, that the American people can get behind. And then we can move further, right? We get that passed. We, we, we set that as the standard. Then we look at things like the abortion pill and, and realize that, Hey, you know, this is killing women. This is dangerous. Uh, you know, under a Republican administration, maybe we're going to, uh, have the FDA look at this and, and, and limit its, its distribution, you know, that sort of thing. I think there's lots of things we can do, but we, we certainly need to make a moral argument that, that the American voter can understand. And I, I think that the, the easiest way to do that is late term because everyone seems to agree with us on that besides the most rabid pro-abortion leftists that 
at a certain point, now we believe it's at conception, but everyone agrees at a certain point that the, the baby is alive and it, sh- and it deserves protection. So the question is when, and, and I think, you know, we've talked about this 15 week number, but I think if Republicans all jumped on that and pointed to 15 weeks and said, this is what we want to do at the federal level. We don't think in a country like this, we, sh- you know, a civilized society, we should be um, killing babies after 15 weeks and, and compare that to the Democrats position, uh, 40 week abortion, taxpayer funded on demand um, for any reason. I, I think we win that fight. And, mm-hmm. and the problem is Republicans actually have to take this on. It can't be like issue number 10, 11, 12, 13. It actually has to be for us to win it. We actually have to make this a big part of our messaging. And so far, there's actually been a complete unwillingness to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even our champions don't want to talk about abortion right now. And mm-hmm. I, my, my theory is that I actually think we're going to keep losing elections until we do, because the Democrats recognize when they message on rape, incest, life of mother, you know, when they're telling you that Republicans want to jail women or have women die on the operating table, that's really compelling messaging. And our issues like inflation or crime or even, frankly, guys, even the trans issues, you know, if we counter with that and don't talk about the abortion stuff, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought this up because after Dobbs came down, there was an onslaught of $500 million of concentrated advertisement just on abortion between Dobbs coming down and then the midterms. That is such a tidal wave of money. And it was devoted largely towards convincing the public that Dobbs stood for an abortion ban nationwide. Didn't matter if that's not what the decision held at all. A lot of people are like, what if it did, right? <laughs> but it didn't. Um Instead, it was targeted towards creating a misunderstanding in the populace about what this um, opinion held. And despite that, you and your colleagues at APP have found that there's, without a doubt, a path forward with a much more clear message to counteract that $500 million onslaught which is to, and, you know, and you've told me, but for the benefit of our listeners, um, to lead with those prudential exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, and then making crystal clear gestational limits. Maybe it's 20 weeks, which is around the pain-capable right age, and more, maybe it's 15 weeks. But what what is your polling telling you is not only acceptable as long as you lead with those exceptions, but is also smart politically. Well, you, you're right. The exceptions are everything. Um, and, and, and frankly, that's how you know whether a poll is legitimate or not. Um, I, I was pointing in one of the Twitter threads um, to a University of South Florida poll where they were testing the heartbeat bill that Ron DeSantis was about to sign, except they actually lied in the question and said that there were no exceptions for rape and, and explicitly said that, that there were no exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother. And of course it pulled at like 20% supported it. And then all of the mainstream media was touting this poll. Like, look how unpopular, you know, the heartbeat bill is. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, because the reality is that even though we're out here and we're very philosophical and we, we think about these things through a consistency and all of that, you know, that's, that's a small percentage of the population. Most people are very prudential. They, they think about these things practically. On the issue of rape, you know, we have a, the pro-life movement, there's a constant debate out here 
uh, well, should we, should we have a rape exception? And obviously that's a life. Like, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's hard mm-hmm. to even make this argument. Like, obviously we want to protect that baby too. But the reality is when you ask the American people, they're not with us on that yet. Right. They, they think that someone who is raped, that this is the terminology the left uses, but that they, they should not be forced to carry their rapist baby to term. And that's where they are. And so, you know, this is the difficulty here. And I think this is where Lincoln is really informative. Yeah, I was just thinking of yeah, yeah. is that we are going to have to make temporary compromises in service of the long-term goal, which is to, um, to abolish abortion in this country. And right now, what I'm worried about is that if we can't even agree as a movement for an incremental goal, we'll actually be in a position to where we can't even get an incremental goal 20 years from now. And, and, and I think that's the risk. If we don't have a pro-life party where it both are, you know, one is de facto pro-choice and the other is, you know, hardcore, you know, sacrificing babies to Moloch, um, you're, you're, you're going to lose. And, and so that's, I, I think we can turn this around, but, but we really do have to kind of organize. And again, it's this presidential primary, which we can discuss in a little bit, but, um, this is huge. Like I, I this moment, um, Trump is going down a very dangerous path here. And I, I think if he does go down that route where he's opposed to a federal role on this, the pro-life movement is going to have to completely mobilize against him. And, uh, and if they fail, then, then politically, I think we've, we've lost at least for, for probably a decade, maybe more. John, could I ask particularly on this? Cause the, the way that you've described this, like the way that you look at what happened in Wisconsin seems to be that was a failure in messaging. Whereas where most of what you've termed the, the establishment uh, strategists and advisors seem to say, well, abortion's just a losing issue and we're not getting anywhere there. What's, what's going on with like the establishment strategists? What's happening there that has them in that mindset? Are they looking at different de- data than you all are? What's, are they just have a different mindset? What's the difference going on? Uh, well, we're both seeing the same thing. Um, the difference is that they're professional losers and we're professional winners. And I mean that. Like, like the, the reality is that they see abortion as a bad issue. Let's try to run away from it and see what that does. And, and anyone who has any experience in politics should be able to tell you that that doesn't work. You know, when your opponent has a really powerful hit against you, you can't just run away. And we've actually, we have plenty of data now to show that. Uh, it, they tried so hard in 2022 to make it about inflation and crime and immigration. And, and again, even from our perspective, trans issues, mm-hmm. all the parental rights, all these different things. And if you don't address this fundamental concern that, uh, independent voters had that, you know, predominantly female voters had on this abortion issue, they're not vote for you it doesn't matter what else you say Mm -hmm. and actually to be honest it's kind of the uh do you beat your wife analogy but you know if you don't answer the question people do kind of assume you do it's it's unfortunate but that's just the reality and so rhetorically the only way we can win is to fight back to punch back and actually mitigate their their power on this issue i'm going to give you guys a story um from my own experience in 2012 uh, i was serving as communications director on Bobby Schilling's congressional campaign back then. This was Illinois 17. Yeah. And you guys probably remember there was a uh, an effort by the left. They called it the war on women, the GOP's yeah. war yeah. on women. Yeah. Yeah. And what they were exploiting was there was a bill, uh, H.R. 3, the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act. 
And I guess in one of the initial drafts, uh, they uh, had for a rape exception, the word forcible ended up striking that in a later draft. But this was something the Democrats seized on. They decided to take this issue that was actually like 70, 30 in favor of the Republicans. People don't want taxpayer funding for abortion. And they decided to flip it on its head. And they, the argument they made was that, uh, and this was actually explicitly in a, uh, a campaign mailer that Bobby Schilling tried to redefine rape, which makes no sense. Uh, but that was what they did. And, you know, so we were actually vulnerable on this issue and, and the journalists in that district were, forcing us to talk about exceptions and where we were. And, you know, Bobby took the position of, of course, I support the exceptions, which, by the way, got us in hot water with pro-life activists at the time. And, you know, ultimately what we decided to do, and this was against uh, the NRCC's recommendation, it upset some of the professional staff that were working on the race. Uh, We decided to fight back and we, um, I actually got to do it, which is one of my favorite moments. Uh, But I responded basically by saying, you know, yeah, Actually, Sherry Bustos, our opponent, is the one who has the extreme position. She actually supports taxpayer-funded abortions for seventh graders and doesn't want her parents to know about it. And that got printed. And then Sherry Bustos never attacked us publicly. She did micro-targeting, but never did macro-messaging on abortion the rest of the race. Why? Because that was a vulnerability. If We we lost that race uh, because of the Obama wave in Illinois. But had we run on that, I think we would have crushed her. I really do. And it's because you got to play on this turf if they're going to make us play there and you want to force them off of it. I actually think nothing's changed, truthfully, post-Dobbs, besides the fact that Republicans are unwilling to fight on this issue. And uh, if we if we change that, if we go back, we do what Trump did so brilliantly in the third debate against Hillary Clinton, where he talked about how she supported abortion all the way to nine months and how he just couldn't stomach that. And, and just his approach on it was so brilliant. He came at it like a normal person learning about this position and how crazy it is. We'll win. And um, <laughs> the problem is these guys just don't seem to have the temerity to do this. And I don't know how to how to change their mind. <laughs> I got a call. No, not a call. I got an email late that night that Trump um, was in that, was it the third debate with Hillary from uh, the late Michael Novak? And he emailed me. He said, Garrett, in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen a Republican presidential candidate give that visceral a description of uh, abortion and what it does. Um, and I think he even said, like, and, I, and Trump was like the last person I thought who would ever do it. But I think what it speaks to is sometimes you have to just boldly proclaim you know, the truth of the matter, but you have to be very careful about how you proclaim the truth. And so I think what Trump probably inadvertently did was he stumbled on to where he knew the polling was was on his side. Um, and he did it in such a way that, you know, I think uh, uh, folks that were maybe not even convinced about his own pro-life bona fides could see that, you know, even someone like him uh, understood what was um, what was that issue here? Now, what's so troubling about some of his more recent comments um, is that I think what he has absorbed is what he was saying all along that I am pro-life because I appoint Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. And this is what the uh, uh, architect of the heartbeat bills, um, Professor David Forte, uh, calls the um, transformation of um our our chief executive into sort of the 
the prime selector, meaning the president doesn't actually have any kind of say on the abortion issue. He picks the people who are going to rule in his place on these um, questions. Um, so to that end, uh, I know that there's been plenty of discussion about uh, in the past about what role the chief executive would have. I mean, we're seeing Biden, without a doubt, flex pretty full powers of office um, on the life issue, maybe not going so far as Elizabeth Warren would want him to go in establishing Planned Parenthood Quonset huts on national parks to perform abortions. But he's doing seemingly you know, everything else to try and accommodate his um, left flank um, on on abortion. And by you know, flexing the full powers of the presidency. I think in a prudential way, we could see uh, uh, Republican candidates talking about how they as president not only would endorse, you know, federal legislation, but also would probably, you know, show that, look, you know, this is a live issue. And in Lincolnian fashion, we're going to wield the powers of office uh, within, you know, the uh, the boundaries of the rule of law to counter the principle that no this is not a life coming from the left with no we are going to recognize the presumption that we are dealing with human lives here yes we can't you know presume to save every single life in every single circumstance but you know we're not going to willingly um treat these um as uh uh, uh a a whole class of inferior human beings yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really needed on this, and, and by the way, you do see Biden doing it. You certainly have seen Democratic Congresses do it in the past. Um, I, I'm a fan of Federalist 78, right? I, I think that ultimately this this idea that the only branch that can determine what is constitutional is the, is the, the judicial branch. That's not the way the Constitution was designed. Both, you know, these branches are co-equal. Right. Um, the executive has a role in that. So, for example, you know, there's this debate over does the 14th Amendment uh, apply to the unborn? And I think a Republican president should be able to assert under the Constitution that it does. Um, and I think a legislature can do that. So when I hear these constitutional arguments, you know, it's like, guys, you can you can decide what the Constitution says. Right. And the left, obviously, I, I maybe I shouldn't say that that way. But the, the left obviously has been doing that for a long time. They're living constitutionalists. They they make things up all the time. Um, but but I certainly when we're talking about saving the unborn, you know, I, I mean, this is where I get fed up with with the strict constitutionalists. But. I, I see the Constitution as worthless if it can't protect the unborn, right? Like, I mean, what is it for then? And obviously, the thing that's that we're fortunate is that it does. And so, um, I, I just think we need to to have somebody, whether it be uh, on the legislative side, certainly, but really, it's got to be a president who is willing to um, to dispute the judicial branch, who's willing to say, you know what, I don't, I don't think so, actually. And I know that creates a lot of issues. Maybe I'm a little too radical on that, but. That's that's where we need to start going at the very least. Um, we're not even making arguments really to the Supreme Court right now. We're just basically saying, well, the Supreme Court will decide and we'll abide by their decision. That's not even democracy. Right. Well, after Dobbs, we really have a tabula rasa. And it's not like our, I guess, our hypothetical departmentalist stance where you know Lincoln had to oppose the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott put thumbs on the scales in terms of you know favoring abortion. What we're dealing with is not a Dred Scott scenario, but we would have a president saying, now we don't even you know, know what the 
Constitution holds on abortion. So we, the political branches, including the president, are going to act and you are creating uh, a new kind of you know political norm, which can be instantiated in law, given how strongly the president and the Congress feel. Um, and naturally, there will still be flashpoints. I mean, right, we're seeing with the RU486 um, administrative law um, uh, saga right now concerning abortion um, uh, uh, as a you know, as an important matter, but it's certainly not the only matter. I think that you can you can take a view of the RU486 legislation as primarily administrative law that just happens to be uh, centering on abortion. Um, and so, you know, our, our pals in the uh, administrative law space can can, you know, bat around those ideas all day long. But I think the at least what what matters politically um, on abortion is that we are lacking a clear rallying cry and that is in your view and i and i'll and i and i share your your you know deep abiding concern that it's sort of a slowly moving or maybe even quickly moving snowball rolling down the hill because every successive um loss that occurs feeds the narrative that this is not an issue to be discussed as opposed to it's further evidence that we have to get our message clear because the existential threat to the pro-life movement is that politicians will not want to play their role to encourage a culture of life and their and um, uh, uh, recognize uh, the standing of the uh, of the unborn. Right? Silence here is a uh, is a gift um, to those on the other side who have maintained throughout this whole time that there is a governmental role to play. Um, uh, on the issue. I, that, that's probably the best way to put it, right? I mean, Dobbs really created a vacuum for the people to decide what we want our laws to be on abortion. And the Democrats fully understand this. That's why they're rushing to do all of these um, referenda. That's why they're, you know, and they're doing a great job, frankly, just from an objective standpoint. And we've responded by denying the vacuum exists, um, which is just Really kind of something. Um, and so, so, you know, ultimately, uh, we have to figure this out, but I think the most important thing and, and, and certainly the people who listen to this are, are going to be pro-lifers and probably even a lot of movement people. I think the thing that we have to recognize right now, whether you agree with the 15 week bell or not as the strategy, the most important thing right now is federal role. It, we, we have to be explicit that a 15 week bill is within Congress's standing to, to, to enact, whether you like it or not. Right. Heart people would be within full ban would be within. Um, but but right now, if we don't even make that argument and we're, we're kind of fighting against ourselves, uh, um, you know, trying to say that we'll never be able to do anything. I, you know, politically, I have to say, like, that's just a disaster for the Republican Party, too. They don't know it yet. But, you know, I, I think of people like my wife. My wife is a cradle Catholic, uh, you know, very much Catholic social teaching. So would probably be considered a liberal on some of these like welfare issues and immigration and that sort of thing. You take away the life issue and folks like her aren't really going to have a lot of reason to vote Republican. Maybe they get them on parental rights or the transgender stuff. But I mean, you know, this is a big issue for a lot of people in this country. Let's say there's millions of single issue pro-life voters and we're already struggling uh, we can't win the popular vote as is. And I don't think, and this is the, this is the thing that Republicans just don't seem to get. 
we're not going to win <laughs> by by backing off the issue entirely. We're not going to suddenly win some of these these voters that we've we've lost. They're going to still think we're the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a crisis, and I'm I'm hoping that we uh, we address it. So, John, what are the the next real like flashpoints as far as referenda and as far as opportunities for um, uh, not only pro life groups but you know pro life politicians to show their bona fides? I mean, are we going to get another vote maybe on the floor of either the House or the Senate on any of these things anytime soon? Will it be in the states, um, or will it maybe be as part of the Republican presidential primary? That's just going to be where this gets discussed. It's going to be predominantly the primary. I don't expect a lot in Congress to go around. (laughs) Excuse me. Yeah, I don't expect a lot in Congress to go around. I think um, it really is. We need to demand a presidential candidate that's willing to fight on this issue. And I actually, you know, I I mean, I I say the federal role thing, but I also don't just mean someone who says there's a federal role and I'm going to make this issue number 13 on my campaign website either. It really does have to be someone who's going to be proactive and fight it. And so, you know, I was really encouraged. Um, I thought DeSantis set the right tone by signing the heartbeat bill in Florida. Um, I think that's strong legislation. You know, if he wanted to endorse that or even something like a 12 week or 15 week bill at the federal level, I think that'd be really good. But he's got to actually fight this. He had a great line um, talking about how he doesn't govern by polls, but he believes that when you're a strong leader and you explain where you're at and you let the um, you trust the people with this stuff that ultimately the polls change towards yeah. them. Yeah. I think Obama understood that and was really brilliant about that. I mean, look at Obamacare. It was so unpopular when it passed. They suffered horrible election losses in 2010. And now we can't repeal Obamacare. That's never going to happen. Um, so, so I think we got to, we got to think through that, but I am most worried because I think Trump is making an enormous mistake listening to whoever's advising him to stay off this. If he would just run on pretty much the same message he did in 2016, which is basically saying, you know, I think states have a role to play in this, but certainly when we're talking about late term abortion, no way. You know, certainly he didn't say this explicitly. I don't remember, but taxpayer funded abortion, no way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pro life justices, we're going to do that. I, I think he'll be fine, but I'm, I'm afraid one of the things I'm concerned about with him is that he seems to understand that there were two narratives about the midterms. One is that Trump caused the losses, and the second is that abortion caused the losses. And I think he feels like he has to choose that second narrative to, to absolve himself. Mm. And there's the reality is, like, this stuff's complicated. Like, yeah, we, yeah. we lost for a lot of reasons, and abortion was one of them. I, I think probably the... I hate this term, but the election denying, look, that does, that is off-putting to some independents. It probably hurt us in Arizona a little bit. But like, you know, there's a lot of reasons we didn't win. Our messaging nationally was just awful. Like yeah. everyone just thought inflation was happening. And so if we just, you know, pointed that out, that it would go away. Or we just talked about crime, it would go away. It was like nobody did any actual work. And the Republicans suffered for it. And I, I think we're not going to get better until we fix that, um, not only to, to actually combat on abortion, but to think about some of these other issues in more creative ways. You look at, I'm sorry, I'm going on rant here, but mm-hmm. you look at Please. Pennsylvania, where we got absolutely, uh, as Trump likes to say, schlonged. Uh, a big part of that, people don't think this, it wasn't just because Mastriano was a bad candidate and Oz was a bad candidate. I don't think they were good candidates, but the messaging from like Josh Shapiro and from Fetterman, especially Fetterman was phenomenal uh, in their ads. 
you know, it was it was absolutely appealing to Western Pennsylvania, talking about the economy, talking about corporate greed, all sorts of things. They were actually, I wouldn't say complicated ads, but they were substantive. And it allowed voters to really think about these issues. Meanwhile, the Republicans were just running very boilerplate ads. And 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 I just think voters are smart. They reward the party that actually is communicating to them. Um, and, and we just don't do that these days. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think there's so much wisdom in what you just said about how we need to put aside our egos on this. And I mean, yes, we can always talk about Trump and, and his big ego, but you, know, you, you started off this podcast by talking about how in general, like the pro-lifers, that most passionately want to see um, abortion put on a path towards extinction. They have to recognize that the population is not quite with them yet. And they have to put their egos aside as well. We need, you know, bold, courageous, but also like prudential, humble, and like above all else, just very grounded and realistic statesman-esque leaders to just, uh, just, just uh, assume nothing, but go forward with confidence that, this this cause you know it actually can in our lifetimes um you know be realized it's not easy at oftentimes it's very 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 um uh, uh unfulfilling um but it's still for us you know it is the human rights issue of our time I think so. And I, I think also, you know, folks need to understand that the law is a teacher. And so yeah. incrementalism does work. You know, if we if we get to a point, let's say that, you know, everything goes our way and we have a few Democrats who decide to cross over and we pass a 15 week bill in 2025, you know, 10 years from now, an abortion at 17 weeks will be unthinkable. The Overton window will have shifted. Yep. We'll be able to actually talk about maybe we should do 12 weeks. Maybe we should do 10 weeks. Maybe the abortion pill is bad. Maybe we should ban it. I mean, these are the types of conversations that we can't even even have now because of because of where we're at politically. But passing these laws will get us there. And, you know, but we have to first pass these laws and defend these laws and win on their merits. And and I think we can get there. I I, I just think, again, like, you know, I've had a lot of people tell I, I, I need to read more Lincoln, frankly. But Lincoln is the right uh, he's the anal- analogous. Oh man, that's not right. Uh, he's the analogy, uh, in this scenario, because I think it's, it's, it's right on with what we're dealing with the discussion of states rights, you know, um, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, we, this is, this is the moral issue of our time. So I'm hopeful. Uh, I, I do think we can turn this around, but we have to figure out the messaging and, um, hopefully we, we, uh, get a presidential candidate who's willing to, to use that bully pulpit and, and start moving us in the right direction. All right. Well, I think we'll, uh, we'll probably wrap it there. I think we're at time. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on all of this. And to all of our listeners, uh, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, you can find John on social media. I also know he runs a sub stack. We can try to put links in the show notes for uh, places where you can find more from John. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a great day. Thanks for having me. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.